So I'm going to be reading in Isaiah 45 as we continue through this chapter of Scripture. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, we are going to see where the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, the chapter that Paul most clearly expresses God's absolute sovereignty in election and salvation, he quotes from this passage. He comes to this clear teaching in Isaiah 45. As I've been saying, as we've been walking through Isaiah chapters 44 and now 45, and as we, Lord willing, enter into Isaiah 46, you can read Romans chapter 8 through 11, and you can see where the Apostle Paul is just quoting from and quoting from the theology here in Isaiah. Isaiah chapters 44 through 46 are the foundation for Romans chapter 8 through 11. As Paul repeatedly quotes from these chapters in Isaiah in that section of Romans. So thanks be to God. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, inspired the Apostle Paul to create God's God-breathed Word, all authoritative, all sufficient, inerrant and infallible, by guiding the Apostle Paul through Isaiah in this section and through other scriptures as we see the Apostle Paul bringing scripture as the Old Testament scripture. So Isaiah chapter 45, we're going to be focusing in on verses 7 through 13 this morning, but I'm going to go back up and start with verse 5. I'm going to start in verse 5. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above rain down righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness grow with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Verse 9. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. To him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say, he has no hands? Verse 10. Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says. 
the Holy One of Israel and its Maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your truth. Father, we thank you that we can trust in you completely. You are holy, 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 perfect and righteous and just and love. And Father, we thank you that we can trust in your word, in your scriptures, for they are breathed out by you. Father, we pray that you would lead us and guide us. We are absolutely dependent on your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and discernment and knowledge in your word. So, Father, we seek you. In Christ's wonderful name, amen. Amen. You can see as we start into verse 7, why began with Psalm 115 for the opening of the service. Again, Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Because of your love and faithfulness. Verse 2, why do the nations say, where is their God? Verse 3, our God is in the heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Now that is a most important truth. A most foundational and vital truth concerning, concerning God. Where we get in our most trouble and rebellion and obstinance is when we think my will be done, not God's will be done. When we think we want to do what pleases us rather than what pleases God. Or when God does something and we say that is not to our liking. We have forgotten this most important and vital truth that God is God. And we are not. So that's again what Psalm 115 verse 3 is emphasizing. Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. So that's what we're seeing developed here again in Isaiah 45. And I went back a few verses because if you go back to verses 5 and 6, again you see God putting this forward that He alone is God. Again, Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. No other. That's it. And that's what's again, this is what Jesus Christ says. 
when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and there is no other way to the Father except through me. That's it. That's it. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one gospel. Jesus Christ crucified. So that's what's being emphasized here in Isaiah 45. Again, verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. And remember the context there, the immediate context is God calling and equipping Cyrus to come and set his people free from Babylonian captivity before Cyrus was even born. So here you have God exerting his absolute sovereignty of choosing and predestining and bringing something about that pleases him for his glory and his purpose before the person is even born. And that's what you see being established here concerning Cyrus. And why does God do this? Verse 6, that people, who's the people? That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west. Whoa, that's a lot of people. The people there is every tribe, nation, language, and people from the east to the west. There, God is again reaffirming what he told Abraham. He said, through Abraham, in Abraham, through God's promise to Abraham and the children of promise from Abraham, Abraham would be a blessing to every tribe, nation, language, people. And it is that righteousness comes through faith. That's the blessing. That's the promise. That's the gospel. And that's what we're seeing in verse 6. That people may know, so that isn't just Jews, that's Gentiles also, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So vital. So important is what is being lifted up here. So to emphasize that, we have this section of verses 7 through 13. And again, as I said, this is going to be one of the key foundational sections in Isaiah that the Apostle Paul goes to to defend in Romans 9 God's absolute sovereignty and election in saving people by His grace alone, His mercy alone, in Jesus Christ alone, in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, according to His purpose and plan. So this is the, one of the key sections. So first we look at verse 7. Verse 7 of Isaiah 45. This is the Lord speaking. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Calamity is utter disaster. Now remember, God is holy. He is perfect. God does no evil. And in God's plan and purpose, there are times of blessing and there are times of cursing. There are times of abundance 
And there, is, there are times of tremendous destruction and calamity. Remember, this is what God had told Israel. Again, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 29, and you go to Deuteronomy chapter 29, and what's laid before the people there? God says, I give blessing and I give cursing. If you follow me and trust in me and walk in my ways, you'll be blessed. Again, that's what was emphasized in Psalm 115. Blessed are those who fear the Lord. But Deuteronomy 29 also makes clear that if you rebel and you're obstinate and your heart is hard and you refuse to obey the laws of God, God will bring you cursing, disaster, judgment, calamity. This is a holy God. So already is being set up there is everything God does is right. He blesses those whom He will bless. He brings destruction to those to whom He will destroy. It is all just and right and holy because God does it. And because it pleases Him. That's how this is being set up in verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And what's again being emphasized there is God is absolutely, ultimately sovereign over everything. Now again, that doesn't make God the author of evil. And you have that paradigm in Scripture of God's absolute sovereignty and human responsibility and humans being held responsible for what they do, for their rebellion and their evil and disobedience. And God is absolutely sovereign. And that's what's being emphasized and focused here. I just love the image. If you want to see a visible image of verse 7, it's uh, Exodus 10. So here's a visual image of this, a spiritual and then a visual, tangible illustration of Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. And it's Exodus chapter 10, starting at verse 20. So here you get to see this on a spiritual and a physical clear expression of this truth. So Exodus 10, verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go. Verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. Have you ever felt darkness? This is a darkness like there has never been. So God is going to show just how dark He can make darkness. Verse 22, So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch blackness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. It was that pitch black that no one moved. Because they realized if they moved, they would never find where they are, where they're going. I mean, it was, it was too dangerous. They felt the palpable pitch black darkness surrounding them and enveloping them. 
And they had no hope, no peace, no comfort. That's how overwhelming this darkness is that God creates. Verse 23, but all the people of Israel had light in Goshen where they lived. Perfect, normal light. That's miraculous. Yeah, that's what God can do. God literally makes a dividing line between His people and those to whom He is expressing His judgment. And the ones are immersed in such darkness and pitch that they feel it, it overwhelms them. They cannot see anything. And in that fear and dread, they are paralyzed. So that's the type of darkness and light, what we see there in Exodus, what we see being spoken of in verse 7 of Isaiah 45. Again, the Lord says, I form light and create darkness. And that's where we see in the creation narrative in Genesis, where we see God creates the light and separates the light from the dark. Again, at the end of verse 7, I am the Lord who does all these things. And again, you can add to that Psalm 115. The Lord does all these things and all these things he does because it pleases him. It is right to him. And it is according to his will, his plan, and his purposes. Remember, as we've been going through Isaiah, we've been seeing a great deal of expression of God's just holy judgment against Israel. But once we've entered into Isaiah 38 and 39, we see this thread of God saying he is going to restore, he is going to raise up a people from the remnant that is left from the destruction of God's judgment against Jerusalem and Judea. Remember, the judgment is going to be, Jerusalem is going to be absolutely, completely annihilated and destroyed. The wall, the temple, the city will be charred rubble. All the cities around Judea will be charred rubble. Babylon will come in and kill, steal, destroy, burn, and loot and a remnant of people will be taken back to Babylon. And at some point in the future, as God is saying here, He's going to raise up Cyrus, and Cyrus will let the people go who want to go back and rebuild and restore Jerusalem. So the key issue in Isaiah is that God's people are supposed to be holy as God is holy. But what's been the problem? They are just as unholy, ungodly, rebellious as any other group of people on the earth. So that's been the, that's been the indictment in Isaiah. And what compounds that is that the people during Isaiah's time think, they presume, that because they are God's people... They can live however they want in sin and rebellion. And yet, because they are God's people and they have the temple and they have Jerusalem and they have the sacrifices, they're right with God. Even though their hearts are far away from God. 
So the question is, how can God's people be made righteous so that they can be restored and live in right relationship with God? And that's where we see this beautiful description of verse 8. One of the most beautiful depictions of God extending His righteousness. We've already seen it um, in previous chapters where God says, I will make you righteous. We've seen where God says, I will lift you up with my righteous right hand. We've seen the promises that God would send the righteous one who would bring righteousness to his people. And here we have a depiction of God bringing his righteousness. Verse 8. It's a beautiful statement. You see God, the one who made the heavens and earth, and now God is giving this decree and this command. Shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. This is like a depiction of the spring rains after a a bitter, cold, dry winter. And here are the rains of spring that come so that the vegetation can, can get the moisture it needs and can sprout and grow and produce life. So here we have this in verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Now this is a beautiful illustration. And it isn't just found here in Isaiah. This becomes the key illustration in Hosea. Now remember the prophet Hosea and how powerfully God was illustrating through Isaiah, I mean through Hosea, just how unfaithful God's people had become and how gracious and good God is to make new and restore and make alive an unfaithful sinful people. So you have the same beautiful imagery in Hosea of God's promise to rain down righteousness. Hosea chapter 6, starting at verse 1. And here again, this is a direct parallel to what we've seen in verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 45. Just as in Isaiah 45, verse 7, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. We're going to see what this looks like for God's people in Hosea 6, verse 1. Hosea 6, verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will rebuild us. What a beautiful promise. How does this take place? In Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. This is amazing. This is one of the most powerful Christological prophecies you have in the Old Testament. How is it that God who has torn us will heal us, who has struck us down will bind us up? Verse 2, after two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. That's speaking about the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being placed in the tomb and being raised to new life. So how is it that we who have been torn can be healed? We who have been struck down can be bound up? 
It is by being made alive in Jesus Christ. What Hosea puts forth. And that's what we see is being spoken of here in Isaiah 45. If you look at verse 3, here's the direct tie to our passage of Hosea 6. Hosea 6, 3. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. There's the spring rains that Isaiah is pointing to. Again, you go to Hosea 10, another direct parallel passage to ours in Isaiah, explaining what this means, that God calls down righteousness to rain down on his people so they could be made right. Hosea chapter 10, verse 10. When I please, I will discipline them and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. So here it's speaking of God bringing his judgment of, of his people. Verse 11, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Verse 12, sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. There it is. We have these rock hard, stony hearts when we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And God, by his grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us new hearts. Hearts that are alive. Hearts that can receive and believe and repent and know God and know His love and turn to Him. And we see a harvest of righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Again, Hosea 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. Verse 13, this is what we have done according to our own plan and purpose and our hard, wicked hearts. Verse 13, you have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way. That's the heart of all sin. Is trusting in our own way, our own strength, our own knowledge, our own wisdom, and seeking to live in ways that please us. That is death. And that brings calamity. But when one looks to God, and trust and believes in Him. And when one acknowledges that God is God and I am not, and He does what He pleases and everything He does is right and true, and I am absolutely, wholly, completely dependent on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that is salvation. And that is true. 
again, as you look at our passage of Isaiah 45, verse 8, shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. And here's the response. Let the earth open. Here's this imagery of these hard, rock-hard hearts being open as the earth opens up and receives the spring rains and sprouts. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Wow. What an imagery. What a beautiful imagery of how it is we come to salvation. We come to salvation because God comes to us while we are yet under condemnation, under His wrath, hating God and hating everyone else, and God comes and rips out our rock-hard hearts, gives us new hearts of flesh, gives us new minds, ears to hear, eyes to see, and He makes us alive. The Holy Spirit comes and makes us alive. And the New Testament takes this imagery, and you have this imagery of the Holy Spirit coming down and making someone alive as the imagery taken here of God raining down righteousness. And where you see that connection is in Titus 3. Here's where the Apostle Paul in teaching Titus, he's drawing upon this imagery that we need the Holy Spirit to come and make us alive and give us the gifts of repentance and faith so that we would receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's a very important sentence. Why did God save us? Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Why? Because we had none. Zero. We are righteousness bankrupt. Absolutely. Totally. Completely. In and of ourselves. And that's the state that Isaiah has been making clear is true for Jew and Gentile, free and slave, barbarian, Scythian, Greek, male and female. We have no righteousness. So Titus 3 again, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. There it is. God's mercy. God's sovereignty. God's plan. His election. His purposes. But according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's the righteous raining down of God to cleanse us, to wash us, to make us new. There it is. There's the fulfillment put forward in Isaiah and Hosea. By the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, verse 6, whom He poured out on us. 
richly. That is tremendous abundance. That is overflowing. That's how God pours out. That's how He rains down His righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ on those to whom He is making alive and saving. Titus 3.6, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So again, as we see in Isaiah 45, our only hope of righteousness is that God would rain it down on us because we have none in and of ourselves. And there's no place on this heaven and earth, there's nothing of creation that can give us that righteousness. We are absolutely dependent on God. And for Him, in His sovereignty and according to His election, to rain that down and to open our hearts let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. And that's Paul's whole focus of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 where God, God saves us as a gift. By grace you have been saved through faith. And why? Verse 8, He has saved us for good works. To bear fruit of the righteousness that He's poured down on us. So we see this clear, important statement here in Scripture. We're absolutely dependent on righteousness. So it's in that context that you have the woes. You have the two woes. And they're both interrelated. They're both depicting the same theme. You have the woe of verse 9 and the woe of verse 10. You don't want to be woed by God. You do not want that. You don't want to be woed by God. You want God to speak blessing and mercy. So here we have this woe, and this woe is directed directly against those who continue in their obstinance, in their pride, and in their presumption before God. Verse 9. Woe to him who strives with. Okay, this is this, this is Jacob. This is my namesake. This is this wrestling, this striving, this fighting with God. That's what's being depicted here. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Pot among earthen pots. This is God's way of saying, you are dirt. You are clay. Remember how God made Adam? He took the, the dirt, the clay, the substance of the earth, and He shaped him and formed him and breathed life into him. That's how Adam was made. So every one of us who are descendants from Adam and Eve, Eve was made from Adam. God takes a rib and forms Eve. We all dirt. That's why still, one of the most powerful and true things that could be spoken at a funeral is ashes to ashes, dust to dust. As a reminder of who we are and what we are. So verse 9, 
Woe to him who strives of him who formed him, pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Well, what's the answer? Of course it doesn't. And what's so powerful about this is we, in our rebellion and sin, do not have as much sense as a clay pot. That's what's being emphasized here. We have less sense than a clay pot. Verse 10, same kind of imagery. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you beginning? Or to a woman, what are you implementing? That makes absolutely no sense. What God is saying, it's the same thing. For anyone who questions, who counters, who strives with, anyone who would say to God, that's not fair. That's not just. That's not right. What's God's answer to that? Woe. Whoa. That's what we see here in verses 9 and 10. And of course, this is where the Apostle Paul draws upon this in Romans 9. But as you go through this imagery, this isn't the only place that Isaiah has mentioned the whole potter and clay imagery. If you go back to Isaiah 29, this is where it's introduced into Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29 starting at verse 13. And here we see this, how the people are striving with God, rebelling and fighting against God. And here's where, where we see this, this imagery of the clay and the potter introduced in Isaiah. So Isaiah 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people, speaking about his own people, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. So what does striving and contending with God look like? Well, it can look very religious. It can look like people going through the motions of sacrifice and service and sacrament and attending church and being respectable looking members of a church as these people of God were going through the motions of the temple and the sacrifices and the prayers. But what was the issue? Their hearts were far from God. So the strive with God doesn't necessitate a fist-waving, blasphemous outcry that there is no God. No, it can look very religious. That's what's being warned of here. Again, Isaiah 29, 13, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? 
Here you have this imagery of people playing hide and seek with God. It's kind of like when I was a kid and I had this, this imagery in my mind when I was really little that if I closed my eyes, they couldn't see me. Have you ever thought of that or you may still think that? They can see you. But, but I did. I remember that moment. I remember closing my eyes tight and said, well, okay, if I can't see them, they can't see me. That's what God's getting at here. How can you hide from God? Verse 15, Oh, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees me? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. So what does it mean to turn things upside down? Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? There it is. That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Wow. So how do we turn things upside down? We think we are God and God is under us. That's the turning upside down. So what does God graciously do to those whom he's saving? He gets us the right side up. He humbles us. He tears us. He breaks us of that pride and rebellion and obstinance so that we cry out in repentance that we know that we deserve God's judgment and wrath because he is holy and we are not. And we understand that Jesus is our only righteousness and salvation. That's the reorienting that we then come to know God is God and we are not. That's the where we have turned things upside down. God writes and gets things in the right order for those to whom he is, he is saving. Again, in verse 10, woe to him who says to a father, what are you beginning? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? We see that beautiful imagery in John. If you turn to... John chapter 1, we see where ultimately God saves whom he will save. And we have no right to question, no right to oppose, no right to strive with God over his decision. John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So in and of ourselves, Jew or Gentile, we don't want Christ. We have no desire for God, salvation, righteousness, because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him. So that's the imagery of Isaiah 45 to all whom God has given a new heart and new mind so that we can receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and be made alive so we can produce a harvest of righteousness in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How did we become a child of God? Were we a little smarter? Were we a little better? Were we a little more holier? No, verse 13. 
who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Completely. Absolutely. So that no one can boast. No one can boast that they are they have been made righteous and that they are saved because of some lineage born of blood. No one can say that they are right with God because of the will of the flesh. And no one can say ultimately because they themselves willed themselves to be saved. No, we all will ourselves to hate God until God gives us a new will. He sets our will free of its bondage to sin and death so that irresistibly we come to will and seek and desire God. That's how gracious God is. When the righteousness rains down and the soil is made so it can receive and grow in fruit. So verse 11 Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? And of course, what's the answer? No. No. You do not want to command God. You want to follow God's command. A very different posture of pride and humility. So again, this is why you can see Paul quotes from this section in Romans chapter 9. So if you go to Romans chapter 9, this becomes the foundation for this argument that Paul is laying out in Romans 9. So if you go to Romans 9, We see this where God brings about through his sovereign plan blessing and cursing, election, reprobation, mercy, judgment, according to his will and his plan. This is the whole basis of Romans chapter 9. And he's quoting from Isaiah 45 to illustrate God's will and purpose in this context. So if you look at Romans 9, starting at verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Wow. They had all that. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Speaking of Jesus Christ who is God. Now there you go. Anyone who denies that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully God does not have Romans chapter 9, verse 5 in their Bible. Or they do and they are confused about what it says. This is one of the most clear expressions of the divinity of Christ in the Scripture is Romans chapter 9, verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
That's a powerful way of Paul saying, that's it. That is truth. Verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That's where Paul reveals that mystery that all those promises in the Scripture concerning Israel are ultimately fulfilled in the church. The church. The new Israel. Because not all Israel are Israel. It's only children of the promise. That promise given to Jew, Gentile, free, barbarian, Scythian, Greek, male and female. That promise that in Abraham all the nations will be blessed who come to faith in righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that's why if you continue on in Romans chapter 9, you see where God makes a distinction between Jacob and Esau. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In verse 14, Paul starts introducing these strivings that people would have toward this truth. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? There's the striving. There's the clay speaking against the potter. That's not just. That's not fair. I can't believe in a God like that. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul's refrain, by no means. God is God. He does what He pleases. Everything He does is right and holy and just. Period. Verse 15, for He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. See that direct parallel to John 1, 10, 11? It's the same statement. It depends not on human will or exertion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. Again, Romans 9, 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's how we are saved. God rains down His righteousness on those to whom He has given hearts to receive, believe, repent, and receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Rain down from God. So verse 18, again, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19, here again, Paul gives a striving, an opposition to God. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his 
will. Paul's response to that striving, he quotes from our passage. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have ye like this? There it is, Isaiah 45. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, hallelujah, all those Gentiles out there, not only from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. There it is. You can see why Paul's quoting from Isaiah 45. Why Paul is going back to that to make that utter clear declaration of God's sovereignty and election. Because we can only boast in God. Because it's all the work of God. God receives all the glory, all the praise, all the honor, and we are not to strive or contend or fight against God. Who can win fighting against God? Nobody. That's what we're being reminded here. So that's why our passage closes out. Again, God emphasizing that He is Creator. Verses 12 and 13. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. God is awfully powerful. That's what he's reminding you there. Verse 13. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. Again, the immediate context is a prophecy concerning Cyrus, that Cyrus will free the uh, people in Babylon who are of God's people, who will go and rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, rebuild Jerusalem. You can read Ezra and Nehemiah and see the fulfillment of this. Ezra chapter 1 explicitly says what is being stated here in verse 13. But ultimately, the full fulfillment of this is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. He is the one, ultimately, who brings righteousness and builds the new Jerusalem, the new temple, which is the church, the people of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells within that temple, the church, and we are for God's glory and praise and honor. So that's my hope and prayer for each and every one of us here. Is that we will again be reminded there is not a day that goes by that we do not face some 
some challenge or sort of some temptation or some pain or some suffering or some persecution, or we don't see that 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 old pride, that old nature, that old flesh, that old man rise up and wage war against us and and try to reassert its pride and position. How do we battle against the world of the devil and the flesh? By remembering God is God and I am not. Jesus is my righteousness. I can make claim to no righteousness of my own. The Holy Spirit has made me alive. Otherwise, I would be dead under condemnation and under wrath. God has saved me by His grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for His glory alone. Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be the glory because of Your love and faithfulness. Verse 3, Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, how grateful we are that You do what pleases You. Because everything you do is perfect, is true, is holy. Oh, Father, we pray that as you grow us in the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, we would grow to trust you more and more. Not my will be done, your will be done. In Christ's wonderful name, amen.